Astronomer Carl Sagan once wrote, The nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies, were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. Today, we know a lot more about how that star stuff is made. For example, until a year ago, nobody was sure where the gold in jewelry comes from. Now, we know it's from merging neutron stars. Exploding massive stars occur very early in the history of the universe, and they've continued on since then. So we don't have to wait for half the life of the universe in order to get things that are going to make rocks on Earth. On this episode of the American Scientist Podcast, an interview with Jennifer Johnson, a professor of astronomy at The Ohio State University, who studies the history of the Milky Way and its stars. I'm Robert Frederick. Almost 150 years ago, the Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev first published what we now recognize as the periodic table. It's an arrangement of all the chemical elements by their recurring, or periodic, chemical properties. In the September-October 2018 special issue on big data and astrophysics, Jennifer Johnson shares the story behind her and her colleagues' version of the periodic table, which uses color coding to indicate the way or ways each element is formed. Whether from Big Bang fusion, merging neutron stars, cosmic ray fission, supernovas, Johnson and her colleagues' periodic table distills the work of astronomers over the course of the past century and continues to be updated with new discoveries. I spoke to her via Skype about how our star stuff was formed. One of the things I'm happiest that we did in the chart was to actually try and get some graphical representation of the proportions from the different processes. Now, in some cases, it really is a, a best guess, but it is backed by a whole bunch of work on how stars fuse in their interiors and what comes out when they die. Where's the data for this color coding coming from? Are we talking about spectrographic data, the kind of light given off by stars, or something else? We are always looking for a light signature. So we're looking for a light that the element either absorbs or emits. In many cases, we're looking in the atmospheres of stars, and so we're looking for these absorption features. But one of my favorite ways that we've learned about what stars make is by looking for very high energy gamma rays from radioactive decay of freshly produced elements. So one of the reasons why we know how much iron exploding stars produce is that iron is originally produced as radioactive nickel. And then we can see through the light that the radioactive nickel emits as it decays how much nickel there was there originally. And that got turned into iron. Other than the most basic element, hydrogen, are there any elements that are formed by only one process? Yeah, we do think that everything past lead is formed in the so-called R process, which is these merging neutron stars. So it turns out that you, in order to get past lead to things like uranium and thorium and plutonium, you need to add neutrons super, 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 super fast. And low mass stars won't do that neutron adding so fast, but you merge two neutron stars, you have a whole bunch of neutrons. You're doing things over the course of a second or a few seconds, and that's exactly where you need to do to get to uranium and beyond, to the actinides. 
Are there still hypotheses to test about where and how elements form in the universe? Absolutely. This question is uh, not settled. The kind of the elements in between ironish elements, the iron group elements, and what we think of as the heaviest elements, things like lead. So right in the tin and arsenic regime, they are not formed in enormous amounts in any one process. So trying to look for their tracers is difficult. So we don't have the whopping signature that we had in the light from the neutron star merger that also had gravitational waves. So uh, we're looking for much weaker signals in terms of the light that they absorb or emit, and that makes it harder to figure out. It also is the case that probably multiple processes go into forming those. So I think our best path forward for those is to take advantage of the large surveys that are happening now and will happen in the future to both understand stars better and to trace the chemical composition of the gas of the Milky Way throughout its history. And so by tying the kind of stars that are formed with when certain amounts of silver or arsenic or tin appeared, we can indirectly probe those results. I also am looking forward to more information from LIGO about how often neutron star mergers occur. This is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, that detects gravitational waves and helps us understand when stars are coming together. Because whether or not certain elements are only made in neutron star mergers or whether or not occasionally other kinds of exploding stars can contribute depends on how often neutron stars merge. And we are going to have an amazing measurement of that from LIGO. You mentioned earlier about knowing when certain amounts of elements appear. Does LIGO somehow help with that too? No, that's a really good question. So the way we measure that is that we take advantage of the fact that the atmosphere of a star, in almost all cases, is a beautiful time capsule of the gas out of which it was born. So the sun is frantically fusing hydrogen into helium in its center, but that extra helium is not what we see when we look at the atmosphere of the star. We see what the gas out of which the star and the Earth were born. And as a result, we can uh, then essentially have a record of what the gas in the Milky Way looked like four billion years ago, five billion years ago, six billion years ago. So for ages of stars, that's pretty well established for how that's calculated? Ages for stars are becoming much, much, much more common and reliable thanks to the Gaia satellite, which is measuring from space very accurate distances to stars. So we know how luminous, how much light stars are putting out, and that is tied to how long they've been turning hydrogen into helium in their cores. So we're getting much better idea of the true ages of stars thanks to the Gaia satellite and its accurate distances. Are there still other processes to discover for how elements are formed? Yes. I think we have named processes that we aren't quite sure where they happen. Okay. (laughs) If that makes sense, right? So we know that there have to be nuclei that are quite proton rich. So these are ones where you got more protons than neutrons. And those do not form in the normal nuclear reactions in stars. But we have to form them some way. So various processes have been proposed, such as eruptions on the surfaces of white dwarfs or other kinds of of very, very dense stars. 
So maybe even the jets that are emitted by black holes are potentially doing something? Yes. Right. So, so just because we have a good idea, for example, of how much iron gets produced in an exploding star doesn't necessarily mean that we can fully model everything that happens in the end. So we can take the end result of how much iron without yet fully understanding everything that the collapsing core of that star is up to. And so I think that we definitely have not solved all the questions we have about how each element and each isotope of each element is made. And so there's some pretty cool extreme environments that might make a small little fraction of an element that we still have yet to probe. With the big surveys coming up, including of the X-ray sky and of the variable sky with a test satellite. TESS. Uh, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. That's the planet-finding satellite that launched earlier this year. We're going to have an idea of what phenomena out there we have totally missed. And that will be very helpful for making sure that we have a complete census of every crazy thing that stars do. Do you have a favorite element? Arsenic. Why? Because it cracks me up that... Of all the things in murder mysteries that could be, (laughs) like of all the things on Earth, arsenic gets to be an element. And this was particularly pleasing for me because of a teenager reading Strong Poison, the Lord Peter Whimsey murder mystery, that it's a key fact that arsenic is not broken down by the body because it's an element. And therefore, you can see arsenic in people's hair if they've been giving themselves immunity against arsenic. They've been eating it a lot. So I'm just like, why, why, why? (laughs) Of all the things in the universe, arsenic gets to be an element. It sounds like there are a lot of puzzles still to be solved about arsenic and where it comes from. Yes, yes, yes. Arsenic is actually an, an element that's quite difficult to measure in stars because the light that it absorbs most strongly is in the ultraviolet. So we need spacecraft to uh, observe the stars with spectrographs. We can't do it from the ground. So there's very limited number of stars with arsenic measured in them. Can we tell anything about the origin of planets or the potential for life elsewhere based on the origin of elements, these spectrographic readings that we get from other stars? One of the really interesting applications of my work on the origin of the elements over the past few years is The fact that I've started working with geophysicists such as Dr. Wendy Panero here at Ohio State to understand how 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 the elements heavier than helium get incorporated into rocky worlds. And what does that mean for the structure and habitability of those rocky worlds? So one of the good things about uh, knowing that elements such as oxygen, silicon, and iron are made in exploding massive stars is that exploding massive stars occur very early in the history of the universe and they've continued on since then. So we don't have to wait for half the life of the universe in order to get things that are going to make rocks on Earth. Silicon, iron, major components for Earth. So you can start making rocky worlds fairly early on. However, the question of habitability gets much more subtle. Okay. This is another layer down, but anyway. Okay. The question of habitability also depends on how much silicon you have relative to iron or even how much uranium you have because 
that helps influence whether or not you have a magnetic field, whether or not you have plate tectonics and other things that we think make life on, on Earth possible. So there's the first question is, do you have stuff to build rocks? And then the second question is, do you have enough stuff to build the right kind of rocks that give you a habitable planet? And that is a place where the origin of the elements periodic table and our knowledge of geophysics and what happens here on Earth come together very nicely. Can you tell this kind of information from looking at the spectrograph of a star that it might have some rocky worlds around it? Or are we still relying on seeing the transit of a planet in front of the star and the dimming light as a result? I, I, I'm going to answer your question, but we probably don't want to go down this road because I'm not the expert in it. Okay. The, the, the quick answer is I'm not quite sure what it means, and I'm not quite sure because we can't identify all planets. I'm not convinced that we have actually identified a set of stars that don't have planets. So it's subtler than that. And the fact that the sun looks more like the non-planet host than the planet host also drives me up a tree. So I think that there's something much more subtle going on there about the exact structure of the solar system, which means that we can both detect planets because they're big and they're close or whatever, as well as the history of the solar system. So it's complicated. Jennifer Johnson, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Jennifer Johnson is a professor of astronomy at The Ohio State University, studying the history of the Milky Way and its stars. You can read her article, A Chemical History of the Universe, and see her and her colleagues' color-coded periodic table in the September-October 2018 special issue on Big Data and Astrophysics. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.